We live in a world where you can get anything you need delivered to your door thanks to DoorDash. If you don't want to do the dishes or you feel a little sick, let DoorDash bring dinner tonight. My family uses DoorDash all the time because it connects us to our favorite restaurants without us having to drive. Last night, we got some Indian food for my wife, some gumbo for me, and sushi for the kids. And everyone was happy, and we didn't have to do the dishes. The process of ordering was quick and easy, and I love DoorDash for real. So I was so happy to do this for them because I'm a customer, because I know DoorDash is your door to more. Must be over 21 to order alcohol. Alcohol available only in select markets. DoorDash, your door to more. Download the DoorDash app now to get almost anything delivered. This episode is brought to you by Paramount+. Plus. Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount+. Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG-13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. Fear is always in us. Like, every time I approach a march, I'm like, you know, today could be the day that some crazy person is here that kills us. The cops could get crazy. Anything can happen. But at the end of the day, I've lost that feeling of what if. Everything can happen. And I know that. You've lost the fear. As soon as I get up and put my boots on and hit the streets, I know at that moment that anything can happen. So I cannot focus on that. Just can't because I can't be effective and I can't lead other people who are really afraid. I can't lead them when I'm in a space of, of uncomfortability. And I mean, you can be uncomfortable, but yeah, a, fa- a space of fear. And I think also because I am looked upon as a leader, I have to be the first one to step out in the line of fire. You can't really approach it with a whole lot of fear in your heart. You just can't. you got to be bold enough to say, if I die today, it's my last day. And my family will know that I've died doing something right for my people. Tamika Mallory is a lifelong activist who helped build and create the Women's March, which changed history. She's one of the most prominent of the modern Black activists who are fighting to change the world. I asked her if she's afraid to get arrested, to get hurt, to get killed doing this work. And her answer was so inspiring. She talked about feeling the fear, but not allowing it to shape her because she knows God will provide. We talk a lot about the Women's March and the challenges of being an activist today, but we start with her thoughts on a very recent controversy that her name is all up in, a controversy challenging the integrity of activist Sean King, alleging financial impropriety on his part. Sean has denied it, and Tamika has stood with Sean throughout it, so I had to ask her why. It's the mighty Tamika Mallory on Touré Show. In the last week, mm. we've seen this whole Sean King, DeRay McKesson thing yes. blow up. Your name is all in it. Yeah. What would you like to say as an opening? I mean, you know, Ray, first of all, thank you for having me on your show. Excited to be here today. I've known you forever. Forever. I was like a really young, young girl. 
But I was doing my thing. You were doing your thing with the young. Rev. And Rachel. Right. You know, it's right. been my mentor forever. And so I know you for a long time. And like, you have like, you have blossomed into serious activists oh, changing yeah. the world, which is exciting to see. Oh, thank you. I'm talking about like 20 years, sort of. Yeah. That's how long it's been. Yeah. So, you know, on the Sean King matter, um, you know, Sean called me up. And I've been working with him for a while with victims and families. You know, I've contacted him a number of times to use his platform to help bring awareness to different issues and vice versa. You know, he's called to say, you know, hopefully there's some type of movement that we can put on the ground in different cities around different issues. So we have a working relationship. Um, And I, you know, pretty much... When he called me and asked me, but first of all, I've been watching for a while people uh, with their critiques of Sean. And I, I know that there are lots of them, and I'm sure that some of them are absolutely true. You know, um, you know, none of us are perfect in this work. We all come with our per- personality issues. And so when you come into a space and you're like, you're not like born, raised, and trained to be the perfect activist. Mm-hmm. So you come with your personality issues. Um, and I, you know, and I, I assume in him working with different people, he's done some things that have been problematic and that folks are, you know, have have felt he may not have properly reckoned with and has not really spent the time working with them to try to correct some of these things. This is some of what I've heard. Um, and obviously, you'll never see me out here, especially trying to tell black women that their experiences with him is not what they say. Sure. If they say that, you know, he harmed them, and that's how they feel. That's fine with me. I'm not going to argue against it. Obviously, I was not there, but I do believe black women. And I understand that in this space, as an organizer, black women are often disrespected and we are not necessary. We're not we're not uh, uh, respected and honored in the way in which we should be. Yet we have a strategic mindset that we bring to the table that our brothers often benefit from and mm-hmm. don't necessarily give us, again, the respect that we deserve. And so I, I recognize all of that. And I've had these conversations with Sean. You know, is he a bad manager? I'm sure at times he has been. You know, has he started projects and ended them? I'm sure he has. And it has harmed people because folks committed their time and energy to these projects. You know, they've raised money together or what have you. And then how it breaks down or how Sean has handled it has been harmful to people. Totally understand. And, I, you know, it hasn't happened to me. But I support that if anyone is is saying that that's their experience, then he needs to be able to deal with that. But the issue here is. So to get to the point of when he called me, his position was they are saying they being people in the in the universe, some folks with checks, you know, the uh, uh, verification checks on Twitter, blue checks and all of that, that. He, right, like we if you have a blue check now, it's like a big thing. People are saying that he stole money right. from families. Right. So when that happens, especially with me being in this work for as long as I've been here, and I see it has happened with Reverend Sharpton, not that he stole money, but that, you know, he's taking money and pocketing it personally mm-hmm. for, you know, from victims or from these issues when what I've seen being, um, you know, a, a executive director and also working with Reverend Sharpton for all of my life, basically, 14 mm-hmm. years of my life, yep. he basically gives money out of his pocket to help victims, you know, 
I don't think other than Joe Guzman giving the National Action Network a donation after he and Sean Bell and, you know, and uh, Trent Benefield had been shot that night on Sean's wedding day, um, you know, once they received their settlement money, Joe Guzman gave a donation to the National Action Network. Other than that, I don't remember a time, period. And I obviously was at the highest level of the organization yeah. that people gave him money or that we raised money for a victim and took some of the money or kept it for operational purposes. That's not a thing that has happened, but it is a storyline that many have tried to use right. to, discredit to discredit him, right? Yeah. And so when I hear that, I'm very sensitive to it. I'm sensitive also because the Women's March has been accused of misappropriating funds that were supposed to be used for other reasons that never happened. So when someone says that Sean King is stealing money from families and he tells me, I need you to look at the books, go through everything. If you find one thing, one thing, and I'm, you can work with this crew of people, you can, you know, turn it inside out. And most importantly, we're going to contact families together and get verification of whether or not they receive what I said I raised for them. When he asked me to do that, I was like, sure. I want to know also. I want to know who is this guy were you not already working with him or within one of his organizations at the time? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. So in the report, he he goes and talks to, you know, he has different people and some of them just know about it and have been sending letters on their own, letters of support. But we spend time asking victims, families, and organizations for their feelings about Sean and to, like, put it in writing. Whatever it is, no one is censoring them. And a lot of support came back, a lot of letters verifying from lawyers what he's done with families. And one of them was the Justice League, which is an organization that I was a part of, um, you know, the Gathering for Justice, which is Harry Belafonte's organization at Carmen Perez runs is the uh, parent organization and Justice League is a task force under it. And so at times we have said to Sean, hey, can you retweet this message? You know, can you help us to bring awareness to these issues? Hey, we're raising money. Can you share a tweet? But when we talk about fundraising, like Sean sitting down and coming up with a number and helping us and pushing it every day the way we see with some other things, he's never done that. At all. He's never done that, period. So there is no big, you know, pot of money that came from Sean King to the Justice League. That has never happened. And, of course, when uh, D-Ray's piece came out, it says that the report mentions raising money for me, which makes me pretty much conflicted in being able to look at his books. I was very clear that he's never, Sean has never given us a dime and he's never raised any substantial money for us, period. So... Back to the the whole point, when I hear that people are saying that folks are stealing money, that raises very serious concerns for me because I see how you can just put that in the universe and then people start believing and they pick it up and then it becomes an issue that discredits all of us as activists and as leaders in this movement. And I don't I don't want to sit by and allow that to happen now. If and I, I gave this example to someone, if you tell me that a man was abusing his wife and and we are all canceling him because he's an abusive man. That's one thing. But now when you say that he actually shot and killed his wife, I'm not going to just stand by that just because you don't like him about something else that he did. I'm not going to do that. I need to know the facts. Like, did that happen? Is the lady dead? Where's the body? <laughs> is her mother going to tell us that she was killed? Like, where where's the body? And there's no body. And there's no saying. body from victims and families. I want to be clear about that. 
Because some folks will say, well, I'm a black woman and I said that he hurt me or he did me wrong or he harmed me. And okay, that's fine. I'm talking about a very specific issue. You don't see me in a report that says Sean King never hurt anybody. You don't see that. You see me saying, I looked at this money and this money that he raised went to the people that it was supposed to go to. So that's that's really my whole point. I think it's it's really important for us to be really careful because I'm not sure that people understand how when that begins to spread, it becomes a thing that impacts all of us as organizers who raise money for people every day. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and you know, I appreciate you diving into that. I don't want to live on that too long because we're here to talk about you and your work and not Sean and his life. Um, so one day, decades from now, when you are no longer here, <laughs> your obituary will say she helped organize and create the first Women's March. That was an historic event mm. that I attended with my children and my wife yeah. and uh, and just an extraordinary day in America and I and I saw Linda Sarsour the night that because she followed me on Sirius um, at three in the morning, <laughs> right? At, because 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 I was on I think from eleven p.m. to two a.m. Uh, okay. thinking I'm going to be talking about what it means to have elected Hillary, and we're like we're still waiting for the fucking returns, and it's one right. a.m. We haven't figured this out <laughs> and yet, just and then depression this, set right, in, and then they handed me the, the ugliest piece of paper in the world that yeah. said Trump won, and I'm wow. like, you got to be fucking kidding me! Yeah, and she came in, and uh, I remember I saw the energy in her was already like. We're going to mobilize. We're going to do something. She, I was like freaking out. She's like, we're moving forward like a bullet train. And the two of you, not just the two of you, who was the other? A, a Carmen. And Carmen. Carmen. We're, I mean, where did the idea come from? How did you make this massive national thing happen? Right. How'd you do it? So, well, first of all, it was like the telephone game. Uh, a woman that Michael Skolnick knew or knows, uh, she contacted him saying that some women were putting together a march and they it was all white women and they were being torn up on social media by black Twitter because they were trying to call the march the uh, Million Women's March, mm. the Million Women's March. So you know the sensitivity around I that. I went to that in Philadelphia. Absolutely. And oh, hell no. Nah. Like you're <laughs> not going to do that. So you know, he he received a call from her. He called me, and he also called Carmen. And he said, "Hey, there's some women who are planning this event, and you you know." And I had, that morning, it was coming up on the feed. There was like in, on, on social media, specifically on Instagram, there was a post there that kept talking about the Millions Women's March, and it kept coming up. And so, you know, I saw it. But hey, when he called, we got on the phone with Bob Bland and some other women who were involved. And we started talking about what they were trying to do. And they were fatigued. It was only like two days of them announcing this thing. And they were fatigued by all of the people coming at them saying, first of all, nah to the name. Second of all, 53% of y'all sisters who voted went out and, and you know, voted for this cat. So y'all need to go get your own people. Like, we tired of marching. Do your own damn march, you know. So all of that was true and fine. And we stand by it. But we looked at it and thought, hey, this is an opportunity. First of all, the white women, most of them, probably 99% of them, had never, ever done a march before. Mm. They'd never even been involved in any social justice organizing. Mm. No idea. You know, they were definitely going to do something that's like, you know, equal pay, 
the rights, abortion rights. Hey, like, it looks really easy. It, it does look you easy. You just tell people, it, hey, important cause for a meeting here. It. Let's go. What more is there, and right? that's it. And so they found out that it was going to be really, really difficult. And they were like, we, we need help. So when we went to the table, we met with them the next day. We went to the table basically saying, hey, if we're going to help organize this, we're not going to help organize it. We're going to organize it. You know, we're not going to be just the event planners and doing all the work behind the scenes and be used as faces. We are going to lead this and we're going to be the face of it. And so that's how we, you know, along with a lot of other stuff that we shit that we went through. um, But we ended up being the four co-chairs, Bob Bland, who was the one white woman, and then obviously Carmen Perez, um, as the Latina and Linda, Palestinian Muslim, Sarsour, yes. and then uh, me as a black woman. How many? How many people came? Oh man! And and well, let me just say before I finish that point, and don't forget, yeah. it was not just us, right? So we were the four co-chairs, but there were seventy people at least, just in in New York and some other places around the country, working twenty four hours a day to pull this effort together. So I just want to make sure we don't lose the fact that it wasn't just the four of us. And it ended up being hundreds of people in the different states and just all across networks working to pull it together. Well, well, this goes to what I'm trying to get at. Like, you know, you had, was it three? It was 1.2 million people in New York. I mean, in D.C., excuse me. And then three million about in the states and then five million across the world. So that's about nine million. You said, I believe <laughs> right. my math is bad. No, no it, it's <laughs> five. No, 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 five million to- total. Five million total. total. In so the around world. the world, five million total. Let's focus on America because that was your focus, right? That was Getting our focus. people and women in. I mean, how do you get three million people? Right, so <laughs> three million Americans. Right, that's what you said. Yeah. How do you get three million Americans to come together? On a day yeah. with one cause. Well, you come out of it with a lot of bruises and scars. That's for sure. I'll tell you that. Um, you know, when we were really focused on D.C., right? We were focused on having a major effort in D.C. One of the other women on the team kept saying, hey, there's something bubbling up with this network that's happening outside. And so... They, she and others put together a team to focus on organizing nationally the sister networks so that they could, you know, participate as well. But we focused really, really, we laser focused on D.C. for a while. And as we started to get towards the end and we saw that so many other people wanted to organize and mobilize, then we began to expand our platform. How now, how do you do million, it? Yeah. Right. So, one, we had a whole lot of press, right? A lot mm-hmm. of media. Mm-hmm. It, and it was everyone across the board, black the Three of you were constantly, constantly MSNBC, CNN. Every every day. So it was a lot of press, and it was across the board, all types of communities, whether the press was good press or bad press, whether people were tearing us up or supporting us, we were in the limelight constantly around this effort. So that's one. Social media, we, act, we had a huge presence. So from the media perspective, we mobilized there. But the most important thing that we did was pull together, and, and I would say Carmen, Carmen Perez was the leader of this. This, she organized at least 600 partners, 
at least 600 partners to be on, you know, a part of our partners for the march. Um, So that was one big effort because we focused in on people who are working with the most marginalized and impacted communities uh, in our society. And so once you begin to really make people feel like they have a seat at the table, we heard their voices. There was a steering committee that was pulled together of people who were trans, people who were, you know, educators, folks in labor, folks in, in all different levels of politics, civil rights folks. So once we put that type of um, uh, steering committee together and then you have all these other organizations, it began to spread the network on a grassroots level. People telling people, people, you got to come, you got to come. We got to go together. And before you knew it, every train going, as a, a matter of fact, Amtrak had to add trains. Right. At the last minute because every train was gone. Um, buses were sold out all over the country. We were like bartering with white women. Like, listen, we know that you went and got all these buses because you can, but these black folks don't have buses and we need to get them. And, and you know, our brown, black and brown communities need to be able to get there as well. So you give us a bus and, you know, whatever. We'll amplify your name on socials or whatever we had to do. So there's So there's huge media. There's lots and lots of partners who are working in their communities. Right. There's an incredible uh, message or brand Branding at the heart of was it. Very strong, and and again, we focused, which was a full blown fight every day. We focused on messaging that really went to the heart of those who are, again, most marginalized and most impacted in our society, which means black folks, brown folks, again, trans folks, you know, people. And and we didn't always do it right because black women were pissed off at times. They didn't feel the messaging was perfect. Trans women definitely kicked our asses at times because we didn't get the messaging perfect there. Native um, women, they were challenging us. So we had a lot of different people who wanted us to tighten up our stuff. What was the hardest hurdle? But— let me say, okay. but white women, and there was there was a New York Times article and other pieces that outlined how white women were saying that they would not march with us because we were being too divisive by saying we're not going to talk about, you know, uh, uh, reproductive rights. We're going to talk about reproductive justice. Like, you know, it's going to make, it's going to talk, touch on the issue of, you know, black infant mortality and all of those issues. It's not going to just be about abortion. We're going to talk about what's happening with black women women's bodies. And that was like, why do we have to make this a black thing? In fact, Bob Bland and I tell this story all the time. When she first got involved, she looked at me and said, you know, why is it that we we have to talk about race and um, and women's issues? Like, what what's the purpose of that? What do they have to do with one another? What does race have to and do? gender, and gender have, have, to have to do? do? Right. I saw a tweet just yesterday. Uh, uh, gender is always racialized. Mm-hmm. Gender is always, and the person had written it like seven times in a row. I'm like, hell yeah. Absolutely. No way, there was no other way to go forward. So when you say what were the toughest challenges or challenge, what was the toughest challenge? I can't tell you one. I can tell you there were many. And I could say that, you know, in order for us to sort of build this table that we created, we had to really be, we were under attack at all times. Like, whether it be from people who we were working with, all the way to organizations, to folks on the ground, to folks on social media, there was a constant, like, onslaught of folks saying, not enough, not right. Why is it, you know, why are we have to talk about race? This is divisive. It's a lot of that. It I sounds think, like the left is giving you a harder time than the right. Well, I don't know, because I think that the right picked 
up uh, what was going on, like the challenges. And as they always do, they exploited it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, they Mm -hmm. exploited it to make it more difficult. You know, being able to utilize things like Fox News. We were on Fox News like every day. Just please. I mean, you know, Linda was, they were, had her up there calling her a terrorist. Right. It's like every day there was something about us out there. So um, what the toughest challenge, though, for me was I cried a lot dealing with black women who were like, I would never, ever support this. I would never go. Why I would never support that? it. Well, because, you know, it's like, first of all, it started out already trying to appropriate a name. Okay. So that was one. It was like off the back. This is fucked up. Okay. And I won't support it. Okay. That was one. The second thing was um that, you know, people just felt like, why am I going to a march with white women anyway? Like mm-hmm. y'all did this. You you yeah. did this. Yeah. Either by your action in voting or your inaction in terms of going to get your aunties, your mama, your, you know, I, I often say like there were so many white women in the space with me who kept saying, we don't talk about race in our households. Like, we don't talk about race. We, tr- we don't really talk about religion. What what should we do? And I would have to tell them, like, every time my son, who's 20 years old, every time he gets up to walk outside of my house, I'd pretty much strip him of his manhood. You know about this conversation. I'm like, listen, I don't care what anybody says to you. Don't argue back. They could be wrong. You can be in the right. Just don't argue. And here I am, this big, bold activist, and I'm telling my son pretty much to shrink himself in all circumstances in order to come home because mommy can't handle it, right? So if I could have that conversation with him every day, you telling me you couldn't ask your mother on at Labor Day that the Labor Day festivities, who she was going to vote for. Like, it's just, it's crazy. This is the problem. You don't want to do the heavy lifting. So these are conversations that we would have to have in the middle of, hey, Tamika, on line one, there's like the National Black Conference of Churches. You know, they want to talk to you. And you're trying to like get to that. And at the same time, talk to a white woman who's crying about why she didn't ask her mother who she was going to vote for. And now her whole family is split. Mm. And so that it was a very difficult space. And and and, and then you have black women, because trust me, the call from the National Conference of Black Churches wasn't like, oh, this is amazing. It was like, what? Our, our women are not interested in this. So what are you going to tell us that's going to make us feel like we will have a presence and not just a presence, but an overwhelming presence because we have the overwhelming issues. So how do you bring that together? How do you tell the sisters you will have the presence how do you tell the white woman who followed her husband and voted for Trump? Right. You fucked up. Right. I, th- I think I always think about that Chappelle uh, bid. He said, you know, y'all were in on the heist. You just don't like your cut. Just don't like <laughs> your cut. Well, you know, that's what you got to watch the movie. Uh, I mean, the show on Hulu. Uh, what's it called? The Women with the Red Dresses. Oh, Handmaid's Tale. Handmaid's Tale. Mm. Because remember how they got in that situation in terms of all the women being slaves to the men is that some of the white women thought it was a good deal. Right. Until they found out they were also second. You know, they were secondary as well. And then, you know, of course, they got to to uh, oppress the women below them. But shit, the, the head lady still got her finger cut off when she didn't. 
do right and stay in line. Spoiler alert. Okay. No, that was last season. If you didn't watch it. I haven't watched last season yet. Oh, you got to check it out. After they almost lynched them in Fenway Park, I was like, you know what? I need a break. (laughs) I love the first season. The second season, I'm like, I need a break. It's a lot. It's heavy. It's very, very heavy. But I suggest that everyone, not just... Uh, white women, not and obviously not just black women, but all women and men watch that show. But how did you? How did you? How did you get the sisters to feel like okay? Some of them never did, and they were and they were righteous. They were like righteously indignant, and I was totally in support of it. In fact, it helped me in my organizing because I would be able to tell these white women all the time, like, "Yo, you see this right here? These black women ain't feeling nothing you're talking about. We have to change the messaging." And they and to be to their credit. Many of them wanted to figure out a way to bring it together. As you were going through the process, <laughs> did you feel like you were building towards something successful and historic? Or did you feel like, this is a mess and I don't know what's going to happen? It's, this is a mess and I don't know what's going to happen. It, must have, it was about three or four days before that I remember Carmen, Linda, and I getting in a little corner by ourselves and looking at each other with these big eyes like, this shit right here is about to be something different. And we were like, don't, we were running around like, don't tell anybody. Like, don't say anything. But I think these numbers in D.C. are going to be outrageous because when all the train, like. So three days before you thought this is going to blow. Right. Like, cause, but before that, you were like. Before it was like a mess. But I mean, at the point that all the trains are sold out, you sit there and say to yourself something, unless they go into a different event, <laughs> something is crazy. Here. I mean, I remember going to the Million Man March and I decided that morning mm. to go. Mm. And, I, and before that, I heard about it, but I'm like, I don't know. I don't know. We'll see. You know, whatever, you know. And. One of my friends was like, yo, I'm going. And I saw some of the early CNN. Mm. I was like, nah, I, I need to go. I jumped on a train and I'm so happy for it. my life that yeah. I was there. And yeah. just the memory of being there with all these men and just so powerful. And yes. I like reconnected with somebody who I had not, I was close with and then fell out with. And yeah. then like, yeah. next thing you know, we're on the mall holding hands with, th- you know, a thousand other men. And like, you know, so powerful. So, you know, like, you know, you do an event like that. You're going to have a lot of people on the last, you know, couple of days being like, okay, let's do it. Right. Let's do it. Yeah. And, well, I think for us, people had been planning to be there. But we were just so caught up in the day-to-day head down. Because you had to have your head down all day long in order to make this happen. And you could go to sleep, let's just say, at 1 a.m., but you definitely had to get up about 3.30 and check the thread and check the news to see what was the spin of the day and which direction was, you know, was who, whatever media outlet going to come from that's going to shake it up. Because what you had were highs and lows. Highs and lows. You had these moments when it was like, great, and then somebody would write an article about how awful we were, or how mad white women were, or how black women hated us, or whatever it is. And when that happened, it's like a low. A big low. People start dropping out, unfollowing, the whole thing. There is a lot of righteous anger at the event. A lot of incredible signs, a lot of incredible energy. I mean, it was both Love 
and oh. this indignation oh, yeah. and this shock. Like this is where we are as a country. Yeah. And like, do you ever see the fo- the the sign of the woman standing? There was all white women around her, and she had a sign in her hand that said, "White women don't." It was she was a black girl. She was sucking on a lollipop, and she had a sign in her hand that says, "White women don't forget that you caused this." Like y'all voted for him. Like mm. all of that was happening. Those yeah. feelings, and it was okay. It needed to all exist. And we would say to people, when you ask, how do you how did you explain to people or help them to to decide to be there? It was a lot of just being like, no, you're right. Your feelings are right. Either we messed up or whatever, whoever is the issue, you're right. But we hope you will still be there because we're trying to make this platform about all of us. Did the march change something? Absolutely. What did it change? First of all, it became an entry point for folks who had never been organizers. Black, white. Latina, Asian, you name it. There were people who, and men, who began to see women and our power in a different light, right? Because I can't tell you the number of calls that we received from men telling us, y'all don't know what y'all are doing. You need us to help you. You know, how? what do you you think you're doing here? Men were mansplaining how to organize the women's march. And and meanwhile, I was like, and so then some of the women who were not as experienced would say things to me like, you know, maybe we do. Cause you know, we, we obviously we at times have insecurities and we can all uphold patriarchy, which I've been told that I have done, um, you know, in different situations. Um, So we got to check ourselves on that. And, and there were women who were really like, well, perhaps we should bring in this guy who did Hillary's or who was about to do Hillary's inauguration event and, or whatever. It was all types of stuff. And we, you know, we obviously said no, we fought against it, but it was a, a, a feeling when, when it was over to when we finished we were able to say, look at the power of women and what we can do when we come together. And guess what? That turned into a number of people being elected, women being elected, women and progressives. So about 2018. Being, being elected in the midterm election in 2018. Mm-hmm. Tons right? and tons of women in tons Congress. Tons and tons of women. Senate, right. Right. And just a whole different way of looking at the our platform and our issues the way in which it's being the way in which women are being discussed in political spaces is very different from how it was before because of the march i believe absolutely the march and then right after the march the me too movement um, was able to get the the light that it deserved to Rana. She had already been doing this work for 10 years. Um, but, you know, she had a moment and a moment that was really strong. And it was a continuation of the work that we... And in fact, within the same year as the Women's March, we also had the first women's convention in 40 years in Detroit. And we had Tarana Burke come out and speak and really sort of introduced her to the mainstream media. Again, you know, I'm sure she had been doing it a while, but there was every Everyone was in the room. Mm-hmm. You know, everyone was there. And we made sure that people knew that she was responsible for me, too. Mm-hmm. And after that, it just sort of took off. So, you know, I think we sparked a lot of things. We got a lot of local folks to feel like they could go out and run for office and organize. You know, Lucia Macbeth, I could say for sure that she was one of those people who was there with us and went home saying, I'm going to run for office. And now she's a congresswoman. Member, mm-hmm. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. So we did a lot. We did a lot of shit. And that's why I came with so many bruises. 
because you changed. Because we changed things and we made history and women did it. Mm -hmm. And how dare a little black girl who grew up in the projects in, in Harlem and, you know, a Palestinian Muslim young girl and also obviously a Mexican uh, American, how the hell could they be the faces of this? I mean, you know, I, I find myself wondering, can activism still change the world? Oh, it, it has. It always has and it always will. We better have it. And, and it, it, it looks different, though. I get I get what you're saying. It's like, can we just do the same old stuff that we did before and then it's, you know, going to change the world? No, we have to be able to flow with the time. That it, Everything has changed. You have to be able to really meet the needs of the people because they will tune your ass out. You'll have no one at your, you know, at your march or whatever your effort is if you haven't really, really messaged it in a way and brought people to the table that makes them feel inclusive. So the old days of the men, the men being able to hold a march and then not allow someone to speak and only have like Mahalia Jackson sing a song and you know, that kind of stuff. The Million Man March idea, which I think should happen again, to be clear. Sure. But the idea of having a Million Man March and only allowing um, Dr. Doreen uh, Height, uh, Dorothy Height, excuse me, mm-hmm. uh, to be able to speak is not like, well, it's not, it, it well, just. Part of the thing I wonder is the the old model of the egocentric, not as a criticism, but the egocentric, charismatic, (laughs) singular leader, Mm -hmm. right? Always a man, right? Right. But like Malcolm Martin, you know, maybe Eldridge and Huey, right? Like you said, that does not work anymore. No, and let me just say her name properly because she deserves the right honor. It's Dr. Dorothy Irene Height. Okay. So let's just get that right. But anyway, no, like it's just not going to happen. Like you're not... Uh, and, and that doesn't mean that we still don't need male leadership, that no, no, men should right. not be at the forefront of movements. I, I don't I don't support that at all. So my feminism includes men. I have a black son and I have to say this to women all the time who want me to just like throw men under the bus as a part of my platform. I will never. I have a black son. I have a black father. I have black men in my family, a black partner, uh, men um, who are strong and who their presence in my life and in my work is extremely important. I've had major black um, influence in terms of mentorship. So um, in terms of men. So I care about that. But no longer will women play second chair. That's not going to happen. So if you have anything that you're trying to do and you don't ensure that women are included at the leadership level, then it's not it's going to fail. And that's just where we are. So this is a new world. If you have a movement that doesn't include trans women, it's going to fail because this is the it's the world that we live in. We've evolved. We live in a world where you can get anything you need delivered to your door Thanks to DoorDash. If you don't want to do the dishes or you feel a little sick, let DoorDash bring dinner tonight. My family uses DoorDash all the time because it connects us to our favorite restaurants without us having to drive. Last night, we got some Indian food for my wife, some gumbo for me, and sushi for the kids. And everyone was happy, and we didn't have to do the dishes. The process of ordering was quick and easy, and I love DoorDash for real. So I was so happy to do this for them because I'm a customer, because I know DoorDash is your door to more. Must be over 21 to order alcohol. Alcohol available only in select markets. DoorDash, your door to more. Download the DoorDash app now to get almost anything delivered. 
one of the people who helped inspire me to want to be in broadcasting is Oprah Winfrey. She's an inspiration for so many of us, but her daytime talk show was so incredible. And it told me that you could be black and authentic and real on TV. And that made me want to do it too. Black Stories, Black Truths is NPR's new collection that's a celebration of blackness. Each of NPR's black voices are as direct, varied, distinct, and nuanced as the black experience itself. In the Black Stories, Black Truths collection, you'll hear stories of joy, resilience, empowerment, and how to create world-shifting things out of struggle. Every episode is a living account of what it means to be Black today, told from a unique Black perspective. Black perspectives that haven't always been centered in the telling of America's story, but now they are the story. On NPR's Black Stories, Black Truths, you'll find a collection of some of NPR's best podcast episodes celebrating the Black experience. Hear a feed of episodes from across NPR's podcast that center Black voices. Turn on NPR today and hear a range of voices as varied, as nuanced, and as Black as we are. Stories should never be about us without us. Listen now to Black Stories, Black Truths from NPR, wherever you get your podcasts. Influencer. It's a word that gets tossed around a lot these days. There is a woman who went the distance, who broke ground as the first true influencer by living a remarkable life. Her name, Elizabeth Taylor. I'm Katy Perry. This is the story of the original influencer. This is Elizabeth the First. Elizabeth the First, the podcast, wherever you listen. Do we need to be that inclusive? So you're not on the board anymore. Folks are saying mm-hmm. it's because of this and that. Right. What happened? So we... Uh, when we first started the Women's March organization, not the Women's March, the actual March on Washington, but the Women's March organization, in our bylaws, um, you know, we stated that we would only serve two-year terms, that each board member would serve two-year terms. You can come back later, but you can't stay on it for more than two years. Um, and in in July, well, let me just get this straight. So, We started the organization very sort of backwards in terms of how you usually start something is you start the organization, then you do the mass event. But in our situation, we had a mass event. We did. We had all this notoriety and all this attention. And now we're trying to build a foundation after the fact. So it's it's definitely off. So when we set up the board, knowing that we would have two year terms and trying to find a new board, it took us about a little over three years to be able to do it. So we kind of served a little bit longer than we were supposed to. But our time is up. And it was time for us to find a new board, which we did. We had a selection process. There were other amazing individuals involved in helping us find the group that we have now. We chose this board. Uh, We have one seat on the board that is for the four co-chairs, and it's a grandfather seat. Carmen Perez is sitting in it now. In two years, someone else will rotate off and on. So this idea that— That might be you. 
It could be me. It could be whoever at the time is in a position to be able to take on the responsibility will be able to serve. And, you know, this idea, I saw the Washington Post put out a story which was super disingenuous and just messy, saying that the Women's March cut ties with us um, amid anti-Semitism issues and infighting. And it's just a lie. Like, it's just a complete lie. The bottom line is we, and first of all, when you speak about the Women's March, you speak as if it's not us. So we cut ties with ourselves because we <laughs> We're the ones that recruited a new board of a new board and brought them on and have been working with them ever since and will continue to. I don't know that you can ever just say that unless one of us decides that we don't ever want to talk to people at the Women's March again. I'm not sure that you can ever cut ties with the people who founded the organization. Mm, mm. So for people who come after you and want mm. to do something like this. Mm. What could you have done better? Oh, man. I mean, certainly our messaging around communities, different communities could have been much better. Um, bringing certain certain people and certain voices to the table could have been much better. You know, I think when we look back at how we organize, one area that we definitely missed was having uh, Jewish women to be a part of the leadership of the, the 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 march and going forward. I mean, we did have Jewish women who were supportive, who spoke. Why Jewish women in particular? Um, well, because that was a group that raised the issue with how our organization ended up, uh, you know, being a space that they didn't feel included you mean, in. It, it, because you're saying Jewish Americans are particularly uh, oppressed as opposed to, say, Christian Americans? Oh, well, no, because we wanted to make sure all... Women were represented, period. So it's not about Olympic, what do you call it, oppression Olympics. It's not about who has a worse situation or not. But at the end of the day, we wanted to ensure that every voice was there. And we definitely had a mishap in terms of of being intentional about the way that Jewish women showed up in the space. Again, women's uh, Jewish women spoke. Uh, some of them were organizers, but there was definitely some concerns about the form, the forming of our organization, the official forming of our organization and how Jewish women were or were not represented. I think that, again, we had some issue with, with issues with black trans women and their voices and the way in which they feel um, that, that they were able to tell their own stories and to be a part of the official forming of an organization. If if Hillary wins... Mm. This does not happen, right? Doesn't happen. There's no need for it. The, the energy is not the same, right? Yeah. I mean, this, this there's is, need for it, but there's no energy. Yeah, th- this there. is this is in response to this horrific American decision. Absolutely. Do you see this as one unique person getting elected by <laughs> using racism to get elected, and thus bringing it out more, or America has shown us? This is who we really are. And Trumpism will continue on for years and years and years after he's out of office. Right. Here's what I said. When we were organizing the Women's March and and people were running around, particularly the non-organizers, running around hollering about we can't believe it, crying, this guy is the president. Oh, my God, we just found out that racism exists in America. And how could this be? Right. We just had a black president. And I voted for him and I had black friends. And how could this be? I sat down at a table one day and said, I will not participate in this march if it's going to be about Trump. 
If we're going to focus on Trump, I will not participate. In fact, I didn't even want to hear Trump's name because, as you said, this is a continuation of the shit that black and brown people have been dealing with forever. It's bigger than since Trump. The, since the in, this this country was created, he's okay? A symptom, he is a symptom not of the problem. He's a symptom of a system that has to be fixed or you know, in my position, turned upside down and literally like torn down and rebuilt, right? Yeah, yeah, so yeah. that's what he is. He's a player. He's a character in yeah. a movie that we've seen over and over. This is a historic movie that's been out since forever and for before 400 years. The, before before 460 yeah. years, yeah. they say. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So this is nothing new. And I'm not going to focus on Trump because that's the first way, first way we will lose black women, especially in this conversation, if they feel like this whole march is anti-Trump and not not about even you as a, a, a supposed to be ally, a progressive ally who is extremely dangerous in my everyday life. Like this has to get to the point. These women needed to know that we were even going to talk about like how white women treat us in the workplace as black women, like the real relationship between all of us outside of whether or not Trump is a problem because he's, there's going to be another Trump. So. That's just the reality, right? So I refuse to do that. And that's why when I spoke that day from the, at the march, I said, now you all are feeling what we've been feeling. Welcome to our world. Mm. Welcome to where we come from. This is every day for us. You know what I mean? Shit. People, if you think about many of the names that we call in terms of folks, police brutality victims, they this happened under Obama. Under Obama, we almost lost our minds every day with a new Mike Brown, a new story. A new story, Tamir Rice, all of these things. John Crawford. I mean, on the on list on goes on. Exactly. Exactly. Eric Garner. Like, yeah. we're still trying to figure out why the hell didn't that administration take on the responsibility of bringing federal charges against Pantaleo, the officer who choked him to death. Right. So, like, Trump, shit. Actually, Trump is the best co-organizer I've ever had in my life. Because? Because he helps me get people to pay attention and say, yeah, I'm going to be there. He's so overtly racist and just nasty and sexist that people see it and say, "Okay, we need to move. Because, again, that's why I said if Hillary was in office, oh, we would still need five million people, women, especially to march for sure. Because she wasn't going to get in there and free every black man or woman who's in prison. No. um, You know, who uh, wrongfully convicted. That wasn't going to happen. Right. Right. So we were still going to be dealing with same of these systematic same some of these same systematic issues, even under Hillary, although I'm sure she would have been doing a better job at working towards trying to fix some of the the, the crooked spaces in our in our um, in our society. But she wasn't going to solve. She wasn't going to be the Hail Mary. That wasn't going to happen. Right. So we would have needed the march. So actually, Trump being president may be something that America needs so that we can see. It's like a mirror of who we are. But there's so many people who feel affirmed by the rise of Trump. Oh, my God. And feel comfortable to be racist. <laughs> and even more than that, I feel like the 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 attack on media yeah. is so deep yeah. that... Now we have half the country that just says, I just don't believe anything that I don't want to believe. I was watching the Chelsea Handler special on Netflix about Mm -hmm. white privilege. Yes. And she goes to this festival or whatever, and she says to a white guy, you know, so what do you think about white privilege? He goes, fake news. I'm like, 
You're not even using the term right. Right. But you, yeah, I'll just deny right. anything that I want to deny. It doesn't exist. It's not real. And so he feels comfortable in saying, no, that's bullshit. Right. And like, so how do we make, pro- I mean, like when I was growing up, many of the white people around us would at least listen when we said, hey, we feel racism. We feel hurt. We feel, they would listen. They may right. not understand, but they would listen. Now they're like, no, no, you're the real racist. You're the racist. Fake news. Oh God, like, I hear that oh every day. God. That's always the, 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 the storyline they use, right? I mean, well, <laughs> give me some power so that I can be the real racist. Yeah, whatever. Yeah, I mean, but it doesn't help when you have media outlets doing like that's the only thing that I agree with Trump about fake news because it's been so much fake news out there about Women's March about me mm. as a leader and when you have uh you know the Washington Post putting out a headline that's completely untrue something that the Women's March did not tell them mm. you know the Women's March has put out statements since then saying like. We haven't so cut they, ties with anybody, but happen? they do that. Because they, what you mean? You've been in media your whole life. Like I know, you grew but up, I've you never, were a baby I, I in it. I never knew anybody to say, I'm going to write a fake story yeah, that well. hurts Tamika or the Women's March or BLM or whatever. Uh, in media that I know, right. people value their integrity, integrity. because that's everything. Right. If we don't believe you, then you have no place in this game at all. I mean, I remember... Uh, Jason Blair and like, mm. oh my God, like you would never want to beat Jason Blair. No, that would be the right. end of your career. Right. And Yeah, but you know, I mean, everything is for clickbait at this time. Like mm. everybody needs clicks. And so, so that's at best. At best, you're trying to get clicks. At worst, you're a part of Trump's system. Like mm. you're, you're actually a part of the right wing that seeks to try to uh, discredit any leader who you know has influence to be able particularly to take back the White House. That's that's there's a lot of people who don't want that to happen. Mm. And don't don't think that everybody's on the same page, even though they may say they are. That's like smoke and mirrors. So what are your goals as an activist? Yeah. Long term. What is, what is what is the thesis of your project? You know, so now I've started an organization called Until Freedom. Um, that's my my work. It's a social justice organization. And we're just trying to basically look at things a little bit different. Right. Like we know that the way in which folks need to be organized has not necessarily been happening. We have a lot of spaces that are very elite in our community where our people don't feel like they even have a place there. And so what we want to create is a space where everybody, I'm talking about the formerly incarcerated, the currently incarcerated, the scammer, the the stripper, whoever you are, where you feel like you have a home. So it is a, a space that's wonderful from every everybody from Tour A to Cardi B can sit at the same table and try to work on our issues together. But I think that what we have to do is be able to start planning for the next 20, 30, 100 years. What is it that we want to see? And how do we, as my brother Angelo Pinto, who's one of the co-founders of Until Freedom, as he often says, how do we create a system that can confront the system that we have issues with, right? Because at this point, what we're doing is trying to go into the master's house and like work on the issues with the master's tools, right? Like we're trying to like get the same system that already created this this oppression. I think it was Malcolm X that said that, that you can't use the master's tools to dismantle the master's house. So we're inside the house like begging Massa to please free us. 
It's not going to happen. We actually have to be looking at a broader strategy of how we create a system that we can participate in that is going to stand up to the current system. And I know that is difficult. I know when you hear that, it's like when people hear it, it's like, well, what the hell does that mean? Well, it certainly means creating other uh, avenues instead of mass incarceration, even for people who we feel are the worst in our communities. Like, what else can we do with these people aside from lock them up and make them even more? angry? What type of system can we create that deals with before you even get to prison? Like, let's talk about what we can do in our communities with our children. What is the Black Panther model of today? Mm. Where we can go into our communities and work with our children before they even get to the point where they're 13 and the school is calling the cops and they're being taken out in handcuffs. What are we going to do? How can we educate our own children? Do we need to start after-school programs that complement or are sort of like a supplement for the education that our children aren't getting? So we're really trying to sit down and brainstorm the next 100 years of what this movement looks like and how it can be transferable into new generations. One of the issues that we have with civil rights organizations today And I see a lot of work, like when I just look at what the NAACP is doing right now with a young sister by the name of Tiffany Lofton, who is the youth and college president. She's a dynamic sister and she's she's changing things within the organization. Like you can see young. What does eating healthy mean to you? Whatever your eating goals, Thrive Market is the best place to get all your groceries and household essentials. And getting Thrive shipped to your door is like having a great supermarket right outside your house. I love that Thrive Market carries brands with the highest quality ingredients and ethical sourcing methods. Whether you're looking for organic kid snacks or low sugar alternatives or gluten-free essentials, Thrive Market's got it and their site lets you curate your shopping experience quickly. And as a Thrive member, I save on every order, usually about 30%, which of course I love. And when you join, you help a family in need with the membership matching program. Join in on the savings with Thrive Market today and get 30% off your first order plus a $60 gift for free. Go to thrivemarket.com slash for 30% off your first order plus that free $60 gift. That's Thrive, T-H-R-I-V-E Market. Dot com slash Toray. Thrivemarket.com slash Toray. On March 16th, 2000, two sheriff's deputies were shot in Atlanta. Jamil Alamine, a Muslim leader and former black power activist, was convicted. But the evidence was shaky, and the whole truth didn't come out during the trial. My name is Mosi Secret, and when I started investigating this case in my hometown, I uncovered a dark truth about America. From Tinderfoot TV, Campside Media, and iHeart Podcasts, Radical is available now. Listen to the new podcast, Radical, for free on the iHeartRadio app or wherever you get your podcasts. People and, and their voices coming up. But we have to make movements that are transferable to generations because in this moment, the spaces are so stagnant with the, with the old school mindset that younger people are turned away. I think we need a balance of both. And hopefully until freedom, well, hope, until freedom is going to be dope. So it's going to be the space that like changes the world, period, because we've already done it once, right? So we can definitely do it again, but with our people. Is there a place, not necessarily in <laughs> Until Freedom, but in the, movement the, the in larger mm-hmm. freedom movement in general, is there a place for violence? 
Uh, is it sometimes I necessary? I don't I don't think it's sometimes necessary, but when it does happen, we have to be able to reckon with why. Right? We can't just throw out our and youth condemn. and condemn but our some, young people. But property violence, not violence against individuals, right? right? But, that would yeah. be the... Uh, uh, but property violence quite often gets the community, the local government, the national government to pay attention. Right. Like, And we've seen historically right. property violence will make people go, oh, we need to make some changes. We right. need to give them something because right. they're going to wreck up our business. Because right? government right. is ultimately to uh, to facilitate business. Capitalism rules the world. Right. Right. So certainly it's like you think about these uh, uprisings that have happened in places like Baltimore and other places. And it's like, oh, wh- you know, why are you tearing down the local CVS? Well, the local CVS seemed to get y'all to come and pay attention because if we would have just burned down four or five homes, no one would be here. They wouldn't care. Or if we marched. If we marched, they don't. And we start that way. We start out marching and with Freddie Gray. In Baltimore, they started out marching, protesting, you know, speaking out about the issue, and people just kept on ignoring them. And then you had black preachers even, and some of the black elected officials standing with the police calling for peace and calm. Right. Right? Right. Instead of working with the young people who were out in the streets trying to figure out how do we support you and back you up in the work that you're doing. But I mean, I covered one of the Freddie Gray marches because I was there that whole week. And like, okay, yeah, we marched around, they marched around the hood. And, you know, when I met uh, Patrice and them, it was like, we started out marching on Rodeo Drive. Right. Not, right. not going to preach to our choir. Exactly. We're taking it over here. Take it over but there. But even still. But you'll get your ass arrested. <clears throat> and, you know, and, and it's pretty serious, the charges now for being out there protesting. Like, it used to be you can protest all you want. Now they can lock you up. And if there's, like, a brick thrown or an officer says his arm hurts or whatever, you can get some real damn charges. And they will do things <laughs> like single you, well, single you out. Mm-hmm. Arrest you, right? So then you have to lay back for six months because exactly, I can't take a second I one. Get, so I mean, are you afraid of something like that happening n- to yourself? No, I mean I can't be right. Like I mean, fear is always in us. Like every time I approach a march, I'm like, you know, today could be the day that you know some crazy person is here that kills us. The cops could get crazy. Anything can happen. But at the end of the day, I I've lost that feeling of like, you know, what if it just it or everything can happen. And I know that. You've lost the fear. Of what happens at a, pro- a protest or whatever. As soon as I get up and put my boots on and hit the streets, I know at that moment that anything can happen. So I cannot focus on that. Just can't because I can't be effective and I can't lead other people who are really afraid, especially if it's like their first or second time. I can't lead them when I'm, you know, when I'm in a space of of of. Of of fear. of uncomfortability and I mean you could be uncomfortable but yeah a, fa- a space of fear and and I think also because I am looked upon as a leader I have to be the first one to step out in the line of fire and that you can't really approach it with a whole lot of fear in your heart you just can't you got to be bold enough to say if I die today it's my last day and. My family will know that I fought, I died doing something right for my people. I mean, do you aspire to do... Let's say, I don't aspire to die or be locked up. No, so. <laughs> but, but to do more aggressive things like shutting down 
uh, a police, you know, a police headquarters or shutting down a highway or some of, the, some of the more aggressive things that we've seen other organizations do? I mean, I've been a part of all of that. And I think I will always tell you, Torrey, that protest has to be a part of this because we have to be able to bring awareness and very serious awareness. And you're right. There has to be an escalation at times because we don't get the attention that we deserve. And actually, many cops like in New York. They they're like sergeants and others, whoever's given the mayor, whoever's given the word from from the uh, higher ups. They're like, don't arrest them. Just let them walk around in circles and let them go crazy and do whatever. So sometimes we do have to step out in the street and block traffic, block the highways. We do have to do those things. But I think we're at a place where we have to be able to take the protest movement, our political movements and just the grassroots movements in general and put all of these things together just to find new strategies for how we're going to address our issues. Who are your activist idols? Oh, man. I mean, you know, I would say one is definitely... In, in which generation are you speaking of? Whoever yeah, I would say that you. Hazel Dukes, um, you know, uh, the president of the New York State Conference of the NAACP and also a board member of NAACP, is an incredible, incredible leader and example for me. She has been amazing in terms of being a mentor. She is a very, very unapologetic, and you know her, so she's very unapologetic. She's very very bold. She's a she can be a one woman show that goes up against any system. So I would say certainly she to me is um, one of my activists or organizing leader idols. Um, I would say Linda Sarsour is as well, um, because with all the hell that her people are experiencing, she still believes that when black people are free, then her people will be free. Mm -hmm. So she invests so much time in the issues concerning the black community because she feels that it is linked to her own people's freedom. And so I I admire that because oftentimes, you know, when it's our issue, we write for us. It's like, nah, I ain't got time for that over there. It's got to be over here has to be situated first before I walk over there and help you in your house. But she doesn't do that. She takes an opposite approach. So I would say she is as well. I would say that, um, you know, I'm going to get myself in trouble with naming people. But um, I would say I mentioned Tiffany uh, Lofton as a young person. I see her coming up and she has this fire. And even within the confines of institution and all of that, she's able to, like, break out and, and really show even the NAACP what young people want and how they're going to be involved. What about historic folks from previous generations? folks from previous, I mean, obviously Ella Baker is someone who I've studied because this whole decentralized movement is, it requires a different understanding about how to organize when you come up in a space. I came up in the one single leader space, right? We've studied Dr. King. Um, I I came up in the era of Jesse Jackson and then Reverend Sharpton. Mm -hmm. And so I am am definitely uh, very sensitive to people challenging whether or not I understand what a decentralized movement looks like because my background is not that. Right. But as you as I read Ella Baker and understand her platform and how she talked about the idea of doing away with the uh, the one leader model, it's it's something that I've, I've used as a tool to help me 
sort of not throw away my old learning and understanding, but it's helped me to be able to see myself in a space where it's not just me, that there is a lot of us that have to be at the table in order for us to be able to really lead. Not, not, no one of us can do the work that's ahead of us. Right. We all have to collaborate with others. So I would say Ella Baker, obviously, Angela Davis, I love. Mm. Um, you know, I have to give Melissa Harris-Perry a shout out because, she's like, awesome. she's amazing. Um, so, you know, there there are a lot of folks. I could go on, but I'm telling you I'm going to get myself in trouble. No, no. And that's, <laughs> and, that's, and that's not the point. And the point is not to leave anybody out and anybody left out is not left out. Right. But we have limited time. But I see... In some of the folks who you mentioned, who I know, this and in you, this this warrior spirit, mm. um, where does that come from? I mean, I know you see the goal, but many people see the goal and don't have the warrior spirit to kick out the fear and to push forward in spite of of the fear. Yeah. How do you do that? Where does that come from? Well, I mean, I'm I'm very grateful for my relationship with God and I and I and for anybody who doesn't have one, I'm like, if you better get it. So your activism is rooted in in, in it, faith in God. Absolutely. That, that, that whatever happens is meant to happen. It's meant and, to happen. And that just like the last time and the time before that, that God will sustain me and that it will be purposeful. However, my life, whatever, uh, whatever direction I go in, it will be purposeful and that it will benefit those generations coming behind me. So that I do feel. I also feel like it's your lineage, right? Like my grandfather was an activist, mm. you know. Um, my father, my mother and father are activists. And when I was younger and being like, I got to get away from this, like I'm I'm young and I want to go out and hang out with boys and, you know, chill out on the corner. It seemed like I still just kept getting pulled back because my parents had instilled a certain type of um, foundation in me that I can never walk away from. And I just suggest to people, you know, when they're like, what more can I do? I'm out there, I'm marching, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm moving around, I'm doing the work, I'm tweeting stuff, I'm donating, but you're not necessarily bringing your kids with you, right? Like you're doing it and leaving the kids behind and not really having them involved, whether it be for fear or just not even understanding the importance of engaging them. And what I find is that young people who have parents that brought them with them to the work and into the movement end up having kids that end up having generations that are invested. It's interesting you say that as a parent, um, you know, your son is a young man. Yeah. My children are, you know, old babies. Yeah. Right. They're, and and I mean, like I would have stayed at the Women's March three, four hours longer. Right. But, you know, after an hour, they were kind of like, yeah, you, we're uh, tired. So yeah. I was constrained in what I could do in my participation yeah. a, as a parent. They were like, I, I want to go. And I'm like, I understand that right. you, you want to go. And I want to be that parent who's like, how old are can, they? My children are now 11 and 10. Right. So, you know, they were really younger and it was right. like, it was intense, but they were with it. And they, you know, we built it up before that day. And right. then they were like, this is a lot. I'm going to give you that. Well, first of all, I'm not saying take them everywhere, which you should have taken them to the Women's March. And when they got tired of being there, you pushed a little bit and then you kind of back up. Because the other part of it is that my parents damn near beat me. 
okay, to force me to be there. Matter of fact, not damn near beat me. My mama would go upside my head and be like, you better sit here. And if you don't like it, figure out something to do. But you're going to be here with mm-hmm. me mm-hmm. all day. Mm-hmm. And these other people who have on dashikis and bones in their ears. children anymore. Exactly. So it's a new day. You can't beat them anymore. I totally get it. But that's what she did with me. So that might be a little extreme. But what I can say is that balance is everything. Mm -hmm. It's like you might not be able to actually lead while your kids are there, but you can certainly show up with them at times. You do two hours. And then other times when you're alone, you can do a longer, um, you know, period of time. But, But at the end of the day, leaving them behind Mm. is not an option. Right. They need to be involved. And 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 I, I promise you, the more and more that you bring your kids, they'll get into it. It took me a while. But when personal stra- tragedy struck, it clicked. What are you talking about? Well, when my son's father was murdered. My son's father was murdered when my child was two years old. So it's been 18 years. Mm-hmm. And as soon as his father was killed, it was like, Oh, this is what my parents have been showing me and talking about. And he was killed by other black men. So it's not that it was all the the whole police brutality issue, but the issue of poverty and how poverty is violence to our community and lack of education and parents being locked up. So mass incarceration. It was so many things that played into his the shooting of one man that I began to dedicate my life after that because I knew that, oh, man, Shit, it could happen to my son. It could happen to my neighbor's son, all my little cousins. Like, this is a serious thing that could spread across our communities, and it already is. Mm-hmm. Um, thinking about death being that close to your life. Yeah. And before what you were saying about God propelling you through the yeah. fear and everything is purposeful and whatever happens to you today and tomorrow and it was meant to happen. So do you think about becoming a martyr and, like, what that would mean? Yeah, I'm, I don't focus on it at all because, you know, I don't I, I would be worrying so much about my son and my parents that I probably couldn't yeah. even focus and yeah. my, my family members because I have a very, very close family and they can't handle it like right, like they would. But they they don't want it no. at all. You know, my, my mom and dad, it's just like me with my son. My parents are big, bold activists. You know, they're like they got every kind of, you name the African, clothes and books and whatever. My father's at the Million Man March. Like, they are in it every day. Um, but they don't want me to die. And so not. when they know I'm about to be arrested, they're like, are you sure? Like, did you have to do that today? Like, I don't know. You know, they're still very concerned. Uh, my son is different. One, because, you know, he probably at times can't stand me. So he's like, hey, no. whatever happens. No, I'm just joking. He would be like, mom, how could you say that? But but the other part of it is just that he knows how dedicated I am. And he understands the importance of me being in this work, doing what I do. So sometimes he's like, all right, mom, you know, I was worried, but I knew you were going to be okay. I knew you were going to be okay. Well, I knew whatever happened, it was going to be right. I've heard him say that to me, which kind of hurts. So I try not to focus on it because the more you focus on that, then you can't think. Then you're worrying about every step. I just have to pray, which we do all the time before I go into any situation, before I get on the battlefield, I pray and I say, Lord, please have your will. Make it your will. And more, more than that, people need to know it's not just the march that can kill you. It's the stress, too, because I've had... Bouts with depression, very serious depression. I've had to check myself into a PTSD program, um, you know, especially after the Women's March. The stress can also kill you. 
So it's not like, oh, you go out to a march and get killed. You can die in your sleep from a broken heart. Mm. I mean, look at how many activists we've seen, whether, you know, we question whether some of them have been killed or whether they've committed suicide, whether they've died from, you know, other circumstances. But the, the, the point of the matter is that activists are dying. Leaders are dying. You know, so there's a lot of elements to it. Mm. What's your superpower? <laughs> I talk too much. Um, <laughs> and I've been talking a lot since I was a little kid. And my mom used to be like, that shit is going to get you in big trouble. You need to shut your damn mouth sometimes. And, you know, and that, and that's another thing I would say about folks with kids. Like, sometimes you see whatever it is that they're doing as bad because you don't know what is what their purpose will ultimately be. So my mouth running has actually been the thing that has helped to uh, progress many of the movements that I've been involved in. And, you know, so I'm grateful for that. Um, I think one of my other superpowers is being creative. Many of the things that you've seen us do, like walking from New York City to Washington, D.C. with the criminal justice reform package, which we had three bills that we bought with us literally in a book to... um, uh, to D.C. and there's been great progress on all three of those bills. Um, you know, that was something that I woke up one day and was like, we need to march to D.C. because nobody's paying attention to Eric Garner. They're not paying attention to anything. So we need to do that. And and there's been many other moments when my creative mind has really been the catalyst for, um, you know, for for many of the big moments that we've had. So that's just something that God has given me. And thankfully, he's also shown me where I'm not good at things. So I have a team of folks who can help me make it happen. Thanks to Tamika for a great interview. And thanks to you for listening. Torre Show gives you fuel to power your dreams because you can use your dreams like a rocket ship to blast you into a life you never imagined. You can make your dreams a reality, and this show can help. I'm on Twitter at Torre and on Instagram at Torre Show. Please leave a review on iTunes. It really helps. And tell your friends about the show. Torre Show is written by me, Torre, and produced by Jackie Garifano. Our photographers are Chuck Marcus and Shanta Covington, and we're distributed by DCP Entertainment. And we will be back next Wednesday with another amazing person, because the man can't shut us down. We live in a world where you can get anything you need delivered to your door thanks to DoorDash. If you don't want to do the dishes or you feel a little sick, let DoorDash bring dinner tonight. My family uses DoorDash all the time because it connects us to our favorite restaurants without us having to drive. Last night, we got some Indian food for my wife, some gumbo for me, and sushi for the kids. And everyone was happy, and we didn't have to do the dishes. The process of ordering was quick and easy, and I love DoorDash for real. So I was so happy to do this for them because I'm a customer, because I know DoorDash is your door to more. Must be over 21 to order alcohol. Alcohol available only in select markets. DoorDash, your door to more. Download the DoorDash app now to get almost anything delivered.